0: WMNF Tampa. Our next program is pre-recorded.
1: Hi, this is Annie Ellis, and you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show, coming to you from the studios of WMNF Tampa. This show is pre-recorded. Therefore, no calls will be taken nor emails replied to. We will return on January 8th for a brand new year of sustainable living, where we will bring you conversations with local experts and try to balance people, profit, and planet. Between Thanksgiving and New Year's Day, there is at least a 25% increase in volume or about 1,000 pounds of more waste per household. So do not use disposable cookware, plastic tableware, or paper napkins to reduce that load. My favorite sustainable tips for the holidays to share with you is how not to use single-use wrapping for your gifts. So you can save your chip bags and turn them inside out to show the silver liner. Use old paper maps, comics from the newspaper, foreign newspapers, tea towels, scarves, spare fabrics, reusable tins. Also reusable fabric ribbons, jute string, evergreen sprigs. And for tags, you can use cut out bits from calendars, reused holiday cards and old postcards. We hope that you are enjoying your holidays with your friends and family. Happy holidays! Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right.
2: Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5 where every Monday at 11 we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the wonderful Annie Ellis. Thank
1: you, Kenny. Good to see you,
2: wonderful and, Kenny Coogan. <laughs> thank you. And today we are talking with Dr. Gavin Naylor, Director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at the University of Florida. And we're going to be talking about sharks and rays and sawfish, and we are so excited I about that. I am so excited. because I it's, a bunch
1: of research.
2: It's a little different than our typical program, right. but... Uh, these are animals that we need to protect right, well, and learn more is, about. soft is very endangered. All right. So now for the rest of the program, we're going to go from wine to sharks. <laughs> <laughs> I've known <done> a few. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like I mentioned earlier, we're talking with Dr. Gavin Naylor, director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at University of Florida and we're talking about sharks, rays, and sawfish. Welcome to the program, Gavin.
1: Hey, Gavin.
0: Hi. Thank you for having me.
1: It's a pleasure. We are excited. We're very we're, excited. we
0: like really
2: excited.
1: I know. I looked up so much stuff. I was so, oh, my God, I can't believe this kind of stuff. It was great. You yeah. want to read it or you want me to read it? Um. I Actually. Think we're, yeah, I think we're I think
2: good. We're but, good. Uh, Gavin, I yeah. wanted to tell you a little bit background about my experience with sharks. I worked at an aquarium for 10 years. And one year I was an aquarist and I took care of the 20,000 gallon shark tank that had maybe five sharks total in it. And I had to walk on this 12 inch uh, platform, wooden platform every other day to feed them. And it it was actually like nerve wracking and it was scary. And then after I left the aquarium, I've been lucky enough to like travel around the world, and every time I go to a place that has sharks, I purposefully go swimming or snorkeling with them.
1: Oh, to get rid of the fear?
2: Yeah, to get rid of the fear, but also like just to like, see them. And when I'm snorkeling, I always think they're, like, like, they're kind of like doofy. <laughs> kinda, uh, they're, they're cute. And they're uh, inquisitive?
1: They're very inquisitive. I think that's part of the problem. It's like I was just telling Greg just a minute ago in Hawaii, I had a friend that I, I saw a surfboard and it had these teeth marks that looked like a whole mouth print. And I went, that looks just like a bite. And he says, it is. And he said a shark came up because it was inquisitive and it bit his surfboard to see if it was something good to eat. And so he just picked his feet up and kept him on the board and paddled in. But uh, that's that's a
2: big thing, isn't it? being inquisitive
0: for those sharks. It it can be, yeah, absolutely. So,
2: So Gavin, we're interested in sharks and rays and sawfish, but why are those animals interesting to biologists and scientists?
0: Well, they're old. And when scientists tell people that a group of animals is old, we really don't know what that means. But essentially what it means is that forms that look like the modern forms can be recognized in the fossil record a long time ago. And we can recognize things that look very shark-like, and we believe they are, the precursors to sharks 400 million years ago. That's amazing. That's about 100 times longer than humans have been around. And what we mean by that is, you know, when did humans first start? Well, they started when these apes started running around on their back legs and started using tools. It's quite arbitrary at what point we say, you know, an organism arises. And essentially what we do is we see if we can recognize something similar that we think is the same a long time ago in the fossil record. And so sharks and rays, well, sharks in particular, have been around for a 100 times longer than humans have. And so if they've been around this long, must be doing something pretty clever because they've overcome all of the <clears throat> extinction events and environmental changes that have happened to the world, such as the Permian extinction, where 80 to 90% of all living things went extinct, or the Cretaceous ex- extinction. They've survived that too. So how do they do that? People often ask me, <coughs> excuse me, they ask me, Uh, how do these uh, how do these animals deal with climate change and I say well if they've dealt with um, the Permian extinction they've dealt with the Cretaceous extinction I think they're going to be just fine the thing that they can't deal with is people pulling them out of the water Mm. as by catch or targeting them so Mm. that's the real concern for them
1: yeah so that that you're talking about how they do the shark hunting and they are uh, killing them for shark fin soup and that sort of thing
0: well absolutely um the world has become much better educated about the problems associated with targeting sharks for their fins and people all over the world are aware of it it still goes on in, in parts of southeast asia but to a much lesser extent but um the, the problem is that they're also caught by accident. People may be targeting some
1: oh.
0: um, some you know netting or long lining for particular target species, and they catch these sharks in the process by mistake, and that's called bycatch. Yes. And the bycatch is uh, is a major a source of mortality.
1: And that's sharks. not just for the sharks, that's for everything because uh, they get they, they can't grow into maturity to be able to procreate. Is that
0: correct? Um, well, it it sharks, are, you know, largely mesopredators or apex predators, and they spend a lot of time cruising around the oceans, which are fairly bleak places. And so, if they see something on a the line, they're particularly prone to go and uh, you know to bite it. And if it's a if it's a mackerel on a hook, then and you're supposedly targeting swordfish, swordfish or something else, then then you might get a shark by mistake. And, and sharks take a long time. To reach maturity, some of them can live 60, 70 years Mm -hmm. and not mature till they're 10 or 15 years Mm -hmm. old. And so if we pull them out of the water, then it's going to take a long time for them to recover. Animals with a shorter generation time, faster turnover will uh, respond or recover more quickly than something with a long generation time.
1: Yeah, that's always very interesting to me how they're pulling out lots of different fish like tuna and lots of different fish. They're they're taking them before they are, uh, mat- are not much into maturity. It may be at mature stage, but if they from 10 years to six years, there's a long time in there for them to be able to uh, make a lot more animals.
2: Right. And Gavin, I think a lot of people know that sharks and rays are related to each other. They have common ancestors. And you're the director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at the University of Florida. So can you talk about why you're talking about sawfish? I'm so excited about sawfish. I can't even stand it. And how they're related or (laughs) if they're related to sharks and rays?
0: Sure. So uh, sawfish are a kind of ray. And uh, rays can get very big. And this particular ray is really unusual in that it's got an exaggerated snout a rostrum we call it and it's studded with these teeth and they move them horizontally um and very effectively uh to slash through schools of fish and uh, they will hit them they'll stun them and then they can come along and uh, eat the fish that they've stunned and they have a fairly small mouth actually but that Rostrum can be four, five, even six feet long in some wow. species in the green sawfish in uh, in northern Australia. And uh, they're veritable weapons. And sawfish used to be targeted. There's a, a small tooth sawfish in, in Florida that used to be targeted all the way around Florida and uh, uh, primarily for uh, trophies. Yes. People would cut off this rostrum and stick them up on... You see them a lot in bars in, in South Florida mm-hmm. stuck up on, on the wall. And uh, uh, these animals take a, a fairly long time to mature and a, long, a reasonably long time to grow. They're not the, they, they're the, the slowest growing, but they're not the fastest either. And they live in a habitat which is really fragile. And that is, uh, they're probably only down to about, most of them down to 150 feet, on the continental shelves. Oh, wow. That's
1: really shallow. Yeah. Wow. Very
0: shallow. And this is an area where a lot of people fish. And uh, there used to be gill netting in Florida. It's been bad now, fortunately. And they would get tangled up in these. So they live in an area which is very susceptible to fishing. And so uh, they used to be really abundant in the 1940s and 1930s. You can see lots of these old black and white pictures of these animals. Strung up in docks, and they're they're just fantastic looking creatures. They really
1: are. You know, yeah, they I mean, used to they're, sell they're the uh, the um, snouts in the tourist uh, purchasing places because right. I'm. You know, pretty old, and and so when we would come down here when I was a little kid, they'd have all those places that would sell shells, and you know, so on and so on, uh, uh, alligator purses, and and right. they would have those uh, for sale in a mass. I mean, there would be like a bowl of them with a lot right. of them in there. I mean, it was a horrible of the situation. Sawfish?
2: Yeah, the sawfish ends. you know, the uh, their snout. Yeah, the rostrum. Yeah. Now, and, Gavin, we just I, got a text message, and somebody's asking, why am I seeing baby sharks in the souvenir shops on Treasure Island? Oh, that's horrible. So that is because they're making money. So, Gavin, that's <laughs> horrible. How, how do we support not, you know, you can't... Are they live or dead? I would say they're dead. Okay. No, but, um, so, Gavin, other than not purchasing those things... Yeah. How could we support shark conservation?
0: Well, um, the the most effective way is just by uh, letting other people that um, uh, might fish for them know about the role that they play in the ocean. So information is probably the best solution to uh, conservation. You can contribute directly financially to various different conservation organizations. But I think... The easiest way is just to learn about these animals and share the information that you learn with other people so that they become aware of the importance that these animals, that, that the role that these animals play in the ecosystem, ecosystem that they live it, in.
1: It's interesting because uh, because the... Um, they didn't know, you know, that's why they were, they were getting them, they were cutting them off, and they were selling them. And so Sorry. there were so many here, they didn't realize, uh, you know, what, uh, a, a, um, uh, how dangerous it's getting now to where there's so few left that unless we, you know, pay attention at this point, there will not be any more. Uh, I do have a really big question for you, too, but I,
2: we do need to uh, reintroduce ourselves. Hello, this is Kenny Coogan with Annie Ellis, and you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF Tampa. This show is pre-recorded. Therefore, no calls will be taken nor emails replied to. We will return on January 8th for a brand new year of sustainable living, where we will bring you conversations with local experts all while trying to balance people, profit, and the planet.
1: Today's guest is Dr. Gavin Naylor, director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at the University of Florida. We're talking about sharks and sawfish and rays and so on. My question is, since we were just talking about this particular thing a moment ago, I wanted to elaborate on it. Uh, on the rostrum, on that saw, uh, I read uh, things about the electro electroreception uh, uh, on how they perceive things. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Yeah, so um, all It's branches, Sharks and rays have the capacity to detect really small amounts of current. And uh, just to put it in context, if you get a regular flashlight battery, like a D-cell, and you were to put one pole in England, where I'm originally from, and another pole in Florida, and if there was no other electrical activity in the ocean, then these animals can ostensibly detect the potential difference, the current between those poles all the way across the Atlantic. Now, practically they can't because there's so many other electrical activities in the area, but they can detect 10 to the minus 12 amps, pico amps. So uh, they have this tool, this device, these ampullae, these tiny little pores all over the snout and around the underside uh, of the mouth, where the mouth is. And all of these animals can detect these small amounts of current. And that allows them to detect the electrical activity of many of the fishes that they're targeting. Or also, they can uh, detect electrical profiles of objects in the water that they're swimming past. And sawfish have these ampullae around the rostrum and around the mouth. So we believe that they're particularly good at detecting All the lasmobranchs are very good at it, but it really is a secret, special uh, power. I tell young children (laughs) that that, uh, they have this capacity, another sense. And I don't know if you've seen on the news, but uh, a wonderful piece of information is that uh, physicists think they may have detected a new force in the universe, uh, a fifth force. So we have the strong force, the weak force, electromagnetism and gravity. There may be another force out there. So uh, I'm always intrigued if there are other forces that have not yet been characterized by science that some animals may be able to pick up
1: on. Oh, that's just fascinating. Probably so, because they, yes, that's probable, very probable. We just haven't figured out what they already know. Well, One little bit of that is that I was thinking when you were talking about that, I was thinking, well, with all the electrical things that we put in the ocean, you know, all the cables and everything that we're putting in there, and then all the sonar and such, are we interfering with their ability to eat with all that too?
0: There's no doubt, absolutely. Uh, There's noise pollution, which affects marine mammals, which communicate with sound. And there's electrical uh, pollution. We've got lots of cables, undersea cables. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was an interesting thing happened about uh, maybe 30 years ago. There's a a large cable that goes across the Atlantic. Yes. uh, People were having problems in that the cable kept getting bitten by sharks. So they had a survey know. to go out there to find out which sharks were biting the cables. So they, they went to the very deep sea to find out some of these animals. And there was a, a lot of money was invested in it to uh, find out which species of sharks were biting the cables. And the, the cables were being bitten by the sharks because they induced the current. Yes. And the sharks could detect it. And they were going bite it because they weren't sure what it is. Exactly as you said before, they're curious and they could detect something that they're used to thinking as living and say well, they were experimenting and biting these cables. But absolutely, hmm. the background electrical activity in the oceans um, will undoubtedly impede their capacity to discern the signals that they're looking for. And that said, there's always electrical activity in the oceans all the time. Every organism generates an electrical field. We just, as humans, we can't really detect them. But a lot of animals are fine-tuned to detect these electrical fields.
1: Did they get a solution to that problem or they're just...
0: <laughs> well, yes, they, they, they want to use those tougher cables okay. and shield them okay. so that... Uh, they're, Shark they're better shield. Protected. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, Gavin, I was surprised to learn on your website, floridamuseum.ufl.edu slash sharks that there are five species of sawfish around the world. Oh. And can you tell us what species of sawfish we have around Florida?
0: Absolutely. We have the small tooth sawfish around Florida, uh, which is one of the five. And, and actually, um, the genetic work that we've done suggests that um, the small tooth sawfish may be one of the most sensitive and fragile. Um, And some of the other sawfish, the pristis pristis, which is uh, um, um, uh, a large sawfish which is found off the coast of Brazil and actually throughout the world in in Southeast Asia, um, is very endangered. All five of the sawfishes are highly endangered. But the one which we believe to be probably the most fragile is actually the small toothed sawfish, the one around Florida. And we have done... Collectively, the people of Florida, the fishing folk of Florida, the scientists in Florida, and the governmental agencies in Florida, particularly the DNR, have done such a wonderful job in educating the public and getting them to realize that these are wonderful parts of, of, uh, of what it means to, to come from Florida, that people have left them alone and reported them when they see them, and they're coming back. That's so great. If, if the sawfish in Florida can make a recovery, then that means there's hope for the other four species mm-hmm. of sawfish around the world, uh, because we believe they're perhaps a little bit more robust. Their life history characteristics are such that they should be a little bit more robust than the ones around Florida. So I think uh, it just shows that if people come together and collectively organize and uh, appreciate nature that uh, and we leave it alone, then often these systems will come back of their own accord.
2: That's good news. A year or two ago, I went to Apollo Beach, where you can go to the Tico Manatee Viewing Center, and sure. maybe like a mile away from there, um, there was all these signs that said, like, not beware, but be cautious, there are sawfish that are here. Sure. So I was yep. wondering, sure. how likely am I to be able to find a sawfish? Do I have to be there like eight hours a day for a year to see a sawfish, or like...
0: Well, that's a, that's a very good question, and one that I'm going to punt on and not give you a very <laughs> good answer. You could be down from Wisconsin um, and go in the water for two hours and be lucky enough to see a sawfish, or you could be um, you know, live in Tampa for 30 years and, and never see one. <laughs> if you go down to Charlotte Harbor, that seems to be the epicenter. Well, it is. It's the epicenter. We call it the lifeboat population of uh, small tooth sawfish in in Florida. There, they are more abundant uh, than they are in other parts of Florida. They've always been localized in that part of of, uh, Western Florida, Uh, but the numbers are coming up now. And I think people that fish routinely there, if you fish say every day for a month, chances are you'll come across a sawfish, Uh, probably a juvenile, but there's big ones down there too. And you can also find large ones in the Florida Keys from time to time, if you know where to look.
2: What was the Charlotte location? What was it called? Charlotte Harbor? Charlotte Harbor.
0: Right, yeah.
2: So yeah.
1: you, um, I wanted to talk to you about the females, but the, this may be a lead for it. Uh, you recently helped tag an adult female sawfish in Cedar Key. And what do you mean by tagging and what was the significance about the tag? Then I want to ask you a question about females.
0: Right, so the most of the sawfish tend to be... Um, localized, in, at least in high density, in the southwest part of Florida, in the Keys and around the uh, Chaloc Harbor um, and, and in that region of Florida where there's lots of islands, lots of mangrove habitat. And that, that, that is where their, their populations are densest. But from time to time, uh, we see them uh, venture north. And that, as I mentioned before, is called the lifeboat population, the southwest Florida population. But uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, um, sawfish could be found all the way up the west coast of Florida, all the way around the northern uh, Gulf of Mexico, all the way across to Texas. And they've always been uh, focused and most abundant in the southwest part of Florida, but your chances of of finding them in other parts of the Gulf of Mexico were much higher than they are today. So uh, that particular uh, specimen that was was tagged off Cedar Key was the first or the most northerly uh, specimen that was actually tagged by the sawfish recovery team. And my colleague um, and friend Dean Grubbs who's a professor at uh, Florida State University, um, routinely, uh, he and his graduate students, routinely go and look for sawfishes, and when they catch them, they tag them. And what Dean does is he goes prim- primarily down to the Keys. He goes there every year, and he tags these large adults. Uh, that, the DNR also tags um, a lot of juvenile sawfishes further a little bit further north around Charlotte Harbor. Um, and, and those guys that's where they go to tag animals, where they're most abundant. And then we can follow the tags as they ping, and we can recognize animals as they move up and down the coast. Very interesting. But we usually don't tag animals very far north. Most of the tagging is done where you expect to find the animals. It's like fishing. You know, you you wouldn't want to go fishing where you don't think there's any fish. You go fishing where you think they are. So most of the tagging is done. Do you think in, in, in that southern: part Do you think that Alaska. has
1: something to do with the, the fresh water because they even go into freshwater or uh, brackish?
0: Um, well, uh, uh, I'm not sure uh, they can tolerate fresh water. certainly they go in there and uh, we find a lot of the smaller ones in freshwater. but uh, the area where we tagged this animal in Cedar Key wasn't uh, it was, it oh, okay. was completely 100 percent marine environment. Um, And uh, it was a female that we think had uh, just pupped. Uh, We obviously didn't do a dissection. Uh, These animals are highly protected, and anyone that we come across, we we treat with kid gloves and and do everything that we possibly can to ensure that uh, we don't compromise them in any way. Um, So it was a large female, and uh, we think it had pupped and uh, was the uh, most northerly one that has been tagged. But as the population recovers, we fully anticipate that Dean and his graduate students will tag more of these animals closer to where Dean is at the um, St. Teresa. The Florida um, State University Marine Lab is up there. And further around uh, the Big Bend, all the way over to Alabama and Mississippi and Texas. Um, We know that these animals... Um, go up and down the coast there, but we haven't really tagged them. This is the most northerly one that's been tagged.
2: Very cool. So Gavin, you have a couple of uh, email questions, but first I want to remind listeners that this is the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today's guest is Dr. Gavin Naylor, Director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at University of Florida. We are talking about sharks and rays and sawfish. And Josh asks, you mentioned sharks and rays are interesting to biologists due to their age. Why are sawfish interesting to biologists?
0: Well, a sawfish interesting to biologists. Well, because sawfish themselves are really weird looking. <laughs> you, um, I mean, they've got this giant buzzsaw on their nose. So, That's you know, I often tell people, you know, if we didn't have turtles, if turtles <laughs> didn't exist, and the only knowledge we had of a turtle was from a fossil, and you saw the the carapace, the shell, in a in a in a fossil arrangement people would their imaginations would be uh, really challenged you would say what is this thing it's got ribs is there flesh on the outside of the body is there flesh in the inside is this skeleton but it's like a box What are these holes sticking out it's got five holes it turns out you know two are for the legs and uh, four are for the legs and one is for the head and and uh, and and, and at the, the posterior end too but but it would be very hard for us if we didn't have anything like a turtle <laughs> to interpret it. And so there are organisms like this that people should know about from the Burgess Shale, a small quarry in, in, um, in Canada that are about uh, 500 million years old. And they are so weird and they're all extinct that we don't even know what they are. Wow. There's one, just to give you an idea, called hallucinogenia. And it's a ridiculous animal with spikes sticking all over it. We don't know which is the head, which is the which is the, the tail end, or which way up it's going to be. All of these weird animals that we don't have contemporary examples of. <laughs> and sawfish would be like that if you didn't see that it's got this great big buzzsaw stuck on its snout and you only had fossils, you'd say, what on earth is that? That's funny. And, and there are some sharks, you know, helicoprion is a classic, which has got this giant set of teeth that's arranged as a helix. And we still really don't know quite whether these are in the jaw or you know, are they on the fins. People have basically stuck these helical arrangements of teeth on various different parts of a shark's body in a guess trying to say, Where they are. So that's the main reason biologists find sawfish so fascinating, is because they're morphologically very weird. We're drawn to the weird. As biologists, we're fascinated by the evolutionary process that has generated. All of these. It makes you kinds think. For sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, that, that, I was just really amused when you called it hallucinogenic. And I was thinking, well, that's because that would be like something someone would dream up if they're hallucinating, right? Yeah, that's not
2: crazy. Exactly.
0: exactly. exactly. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's so, Gavin,
2: I work for an evolution company. And I was curious briefly can you tell us are the five species of sawfish? Did they all come from a common ancestor or did they evolve in different places and different times from other rays?
0: That's an excellent question. It turns out that the living five species of sawfish all come from a common ancestor. And uh, they are most closely related to guitar fishes. So it's a sort of oh. a branch of guitar fishes. And guitar fishes are these sort of rhomboid shaped organisms that are also endangered. And if you just take the snout from a guitar fish and oh, stretch it wow. out, you could sort of imagine making it into a sawfish. So all the five living forms do have a common ancestor that's related to guitar fish.
1: Wow. But
0: that said, there are fossil forms which we think have evolved these rostral structures completely independently. So it's an excellent question. But the, the five that are living today will <laughs> have a common ancestor.
1: That, gu- that guitar fish looks like a ray and a shark that yeah. they stuck together.
0: That <laughs> it, is it does. Super it does. Interesting. It like but, a... uh, so, so one thing that is super useful for people is you know, when you have a, a ray that looks like a shark and there's some sharks that look like rays, like angel mm-hmm. sharks, and the general public say, well, how do you know when it's a ray and when's it a shark? Mm-hmm. Well, very easily... The rays have got all of their gills, all the gill slits, on the bottom, on the ventral side. Oh, okay. And the sharks have got all the gills on the side. So if it's got gills on the side, it's a shark. If it's got gills on the bottom, it's a ray.
1: Hi, this is Annie Ellis, and you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF Tampa. This show is pre-recorded. Therefore, no calls will be taken nor emails replied to. We will return on January 8th for a brand new year of sustainable living where we will bring you conversations with local experts and try to balance people, profit, and planet.
2: Very good. All right, Gavin, you got one more email. At least uh, Demi asks, why are sawfish populations declining so much or why have they historically declined so much?
0: That's an excellent question. It's largely because sawfish live in areas where people fish. Um, Some very rare sharks that live at 5,000 meters are pretty safe because people don't go, well, at least not yet, Uh, Don't go fishing at 5,000 meters to harvest what's down there. But sawfish live on continental margins in reasonably shallow water down to about 150 feet. And there's all sorts of industries that fish these areas, shrimping in particular. Shrimp boats will drag um, their nets over the surface in these kinds of shallow waters. And they will get uh, in targeting uh, all sorts of different fishes um, and sometimes even invertebrates. And this is the habitat that the sawfish live in. Mm. And so sawfish will get completely cleaned out so uh, by, uh, by, by trawling.
2: Very sad. So, Gavin, this is the Sustainable Living Show. And every week we have a sustainable expert on. And historically, for the past 10 years, we've kind of focused on permaculture and gardening right. and alternative energy. But then every once in a while, we have like a Florida species yeah. plants or animals so why should listeners who enjoy sustainable living gardening conserving uh heirloom tomatoes like why should they even care about the well-being of sharks and rays and sawfish like i know we're on the peninsula and oh. we're in florida and we're next to the ocean but like are these two worlds connected in any can you make a connection for
0: us oh absolutely so uh, it's an excellent question, and a lot of people think, well, you know, it's not in my backyard, so I don't really care about it. Um, but the world's oxygen, the primary productivity of oxygen comes primarily from the sea, from algal blooms, and also from, you know, the, uh, the uh, Amazon basin, but most of it comes from the oceans. So the oceans are this, I mean, two-thirds of the sphere that we live on is ocean. And the oceans, we really need to manage them carefully because they absorb energy from the sunlight and when it gets too hot, then we get all these storms um, which mixes all kinds of air masses. They also, we, we need to make sure that the biota, the living forms that are there are in balance, that we have enough oxygen that's been generated by the algae, but not too much oxygen uh, and, and so it's super important if you're growing your heirloom tomatoes <laughs> that you're in an environment that's predictable and stable. Mm. And that means that things that are not in your backyard are also important. Yes. Yeah. So we need to make sure that people treat the oceans with respect. And it's totally fine to fish in the oceans, but we need to do it in a sustainable uh, harvesting way.
1: It's that circle, You know, everything fits together. It's like, you know, that that phrase, the canary in the coal mine, uh, that the canary dies and then they know the gases are there. Well, that's kind of a little late, you know, at that point. But if we start to recognize, you know, that that losing one thing affects another thing and it goes down the line. One thing I really, really, really wanted to talk to you about because I was fascinated about this when I looked it up was the uh, parthenogenesis. Uh, of the females and I just thought that was fascinating if you could uh, elaborate on that that would be
2: maybe define what yeah define what
1: it is and then I understand that 3% uh, of the ones that are here the females uh, did this on their own so
0: so pathogenesis is basically cloning itself it's uh, it's sometimes called virgin birth um, where uh, the females can actually produce offspring that are clones of themselves and uh, 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 initially we, we weren't aware that sharks and rays did this um, but people would keep these animals in aquarium and they'd have a wild caught animal and after three years it would have pups and they would say wow it's storing sperm for at least three years and oh. then another aquarium would have one for five years and say well ours has got sperm storage for five years and then somebody else would have one for seven years and then an aquarium in germany had an animal that had been on its own, living on its own, was born in the aquarium, and it had a bunch of pups. Well, there's no way that could have been storing sperm. So everybody's scratching their heads and going, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on? So they did genetic tests and found out that the offspring were actually identical to the mum. And so they realized that these animals, at least in captivity, were cloning themselves. Well, once we realized, and the technical term is parthenogenesis. Um, and it involves uh, basically not reducing the uh, the genetic complement uh, to half, which is what normally happens for sexually reproducing animals. You you reduce sperm have got half of the DNA that most of your cells have. Eggs have got half of the DNA. When they join together, they recombine and and make whole again. So you've got the standard amount of, of DNA to 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 go through development. Well they found a little trick, which actually a lot of organisms yes, do. Yes,
1: I did not um, know that until I looked yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah. It's,
0: it's, a, it's a very, in fact, it's a smart way to go. I mean, <laughs> if you, <laughs> if you want to survive way. for a long time, <laughs> you know, you clone yourself when it's, when it's, you know, when there's nobody around and, <laughs> and go through sexual reproduction to mix things up a bit when there's a lot of, a lot of individuals around.
2: Yeah,
1: that's
2: yeah. funny. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's fascinating. I really had no idea. <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but yesterday was International Armadillo Day.
1: Oh again. Oh my I, goodness. I, I was, did not. We <laughs> talked about it last week. I didn't realize it was yesterday. Yes. yes. Okay. And
2: uh Armadillos they can delay their pregnancy by one to two years oh, wow. so they can hold on to the sperm and so they can't yeah. hold
1: it then yeah. they're not doing a cloning Correct. okay yeah, you right. know one of the things when you were talking about when they do you were saying about that they you thought that they had pumped i was interested in that what is that uh do they have like those little hard shell do they have live teeth? birth do they have saws <laughs> yeah when
0: they are birthed? is it a, is it
1: an egg <laughs> oh
0: yeah the, the soul i thought you talked about armadillos <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, they what they have it's little pieces of of sort of spongy tissue between each of the teeth like a sheath.
1: Oh, yeah. Otherwise,
0: they'd scratch up the mum's uterus. And, And it's very smooth. And when they are born, that dissolves away within 24 hours and when it dissolves away, they've got these sharp little pointy rostral teeth. That is so and, uh, cool. they That ready should to go. Been the headline of the show.
1: Really? That is so mm-hmm. interesting. So they have like a little coating that's naturally on them yes, and it dissolves right. off. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's yeah. pretty and cool. And so it's a
1: live birth then.
0: Right. It's interesting that you talked about armadillos what? because uh, armadillos have an interesting reproduction, which is uh, oh, it- uh, quite unusual. They have um, quadruplets that are identical. And uh, uh, every, every set of armadillos, is, there's four of them. And the egg, which is basically not part of the genetic, it's a regular egg, it splits once and then each of those splits again. So you now have four eggs and then they develop into little armadillos. Oh. They, they always have four of them at a the time. So it started Most from eggs,
1: one egg. <laughs> All of them. That's interesting. So I I wanted to make sure. Well,
2: let me back up. That's only for the nine banded armadillo. Just the nine band. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's another species that always gives birth to six or twelve identical. Oh yeah, that's what you mentioned that last week. But they only have six nipples.
1: Oh, Um, Oh wow! So they have to die off. The yeah. ones well, die off, then, well, or they just take turns? Hopefully dirt? a lot of them. So I wanted to ask you, You, I want to be specific. So that is a live birth for the sawfish then, obviously. Right. Okay.
2: Can you that talk surprises about me. I don't know why. Um, all of the different ways sharks and rays can give birth?
0: Oh my goodness, yes. Is, so there, o- got, is there
2: only three ways? <laughs> yes. Oh, there's sharks
0: that lay eggs. Yeah. That's... There's sharks that have got live birth. There's sharks that basically the eggs hatch inside the mum. And then they're sustained by, by fluids. So a manta ray, for example, a manta usually just has one pup and it's actually uh, nourished by interuterine milk or histotroph. Oh my
1: god! It's goodness. basically
0: a fatty solution that surrounds the pup and it sort of feeds on it, it gulps it. And then a baby manta is about 100 pounds <gasps> and three feet across. And when they're born... They basically pop out and you see this big cloud of milky solution that 's all that the histotroph, so that 's one way they're nourished other ones as I said, the eggs are laid on the reef and when they hatch, and then the babies are on their own and there's even sharks that have placenti, just like we do placenti wow. have evolved multiple times in animals this idea of a, a bag, a membranous bag that that uh, each uh, uh, embryo is in and it gets uh, nutrition from the mum's blood supply. Well, sharks have evolved this too. And sharks, some of these sharks have little belly buttons. If you look right between
1: the petrol oh, yeah. in
0: a newborn, you can see a little slit. That and that slit is, so is the belly button. Now, you,
1: you said that the uh, manta ray could be birthed at 100 pounds. Where are they in a tight little tube uh, shape? Their arms are wrapped, their little fins are wrapped all around them in like one That's tube, exactly you know? right.
0: They're wrapped up like and a pretzel.
1: And then they
2: open up after they are born. Yeah. Wow. And uh, how big is the mom?
0: Oh, wow. Well, yeah, that, uh, the mom can be 16, 18 feet across. So yeah, oh, wow. It's a complex thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Hello, this is Kenny Coogan with Annie Ellis, and you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF Tampa. This show is pre-recorded. Therefore, no calls will be taken nor emails replied to. We will return on January 8th for a brand new year of sustainable living, where we will bring you conversations with local experts all while trying to balance people, profit, and the planet. One of my favorite sustainable tips for the holidays is don't forget about food waste. Food is a valuable resource and we should not be wasting it. The Ecology Center found that in the U.S. there is a 25% increase in waste between Thanksgiving and New Year's Eve. That's 1 million extra tons of waste and 21% of that is food. If you have extra food, consider giving it to your friends, family, or donating it to a food bank. If you can't give people food, turn the waste into compost. We hope you are enjoying your holidays with your friends and family, and we appreciate you for your continued support here at WMNF Tampa. Now, um, Annie and I share a Google Drive account where we pass on our information, and I don't know if it's been hacked because... About once a month, I mentioned how CBS This Morning has a very similar story to us. They copied us again. I think they copy us, Gavin. So yesterday, <laughs> they had a little segment about identifying humpback whales online. Uh, yeah. So um, historically, you would take a picture of the tail, and then you would go through a, like a literal photo book. They're all different. And it would take right. like an hour to go through and say, oh, I, this is a new whale, or we already have this whale. So they created yeah. this uh, device or this online account where anybody anywhere in the world can upload the tail uh, of the whale and then they can see if it's been identified or not. So if you had a genie or unlimited funds (laughs) as a shark and sawfish research scientist, what would you most like to know? Like what's, what's a big uh, question that you still have?
0: So different people like to know different things. So, My friend Dean Grubbs would like to know where they move and where they give birth and where they mate. A lot of people would like to know that. I would like to know uh, how these, and all animals and and sharks just have a very long history, how you develop and become morphologically the way you are. Um, So what in the programming of these living systems makes one group have this goofy rostrum studded with teeth? What in another group makes these fins, these pectoral fins, stuck to the head and become a giant manta ray? What in the system means uh, creates a situation where some of these animals lay eggs, where others develop a placenta? I would like to know the architecture yes. that's responsible for generating all these different kinds of life forms. <laughs> life on, on our planet is 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 quite humbling. It is if very it's interesting. So spectacular. <clears throat> there's you know eight million different kinds of eukaryote animals, varying from you know a bumblebee bat to a blue whale. Mm-hmm. All of these things have got a common evolutionary thread. And yet they've diversified in really peculiar ways and they all make a living. So that's what I would like to know. I would <laughs> like to know why there's so many different kinds of life forms on the planet and how did they become so self organized? And, and we could never do that as engineers. We couldn't put together what nature has done without, you know, any studying or engineering. All it's, this self-organization and gene it,
1: It's interesting it's because it seems like to me, just as non scientist but as a thinker, that each one of those that developed a different format of, um, of birthing was, it was counter to where they were in their environment. So each one of those that were in those specific areas warranted that for them to be able to uh, have to develop in that way. It just seems exactly. like that to me anyway and then there was another one uh it's it is we have a question here it's the or a statement really it's the 20th anniversary of saw, uh, sawfish placement on the endangered species right. list is this a good thing and what will we like to take to get them to recover and get off that list or do we ever want them off the list really
0: that's a great question so um we we think from the recaptured data And from the movement data done by uh, Dean and and many other colleagues around Florida, scientists and and, uh, government agencies that have tagged these, the DNR in particular, we think that they are probably on their way to recovery. But we don't want to say, okay, it's an open season on sawfish because we'll lose them very quickly. So we want to be sure that uh, they, they certainly look, at, I mean, we're encouraged and we're optimistic that if we continue these measures in another 40, 50 years, that they'll be back to uh, uh, levels that we saw um, 60 to 80 years ago. Um, but then uh, <clears throat> in 40, 50 years, hopefully, the world will have much better appreciation and be much better educated about sustainability and about living with the other organisms on the planet. And so we won't, have to, we won't have to put these dire draconian rules and say people have to go to jail if they do various things, that right. most people will actually have a culture of uh, respect for right. nature. And so we're fingers. fairly optimistic that things will, will, will pan out fairly well.
1: That's very optimistic. Five fingers are crossed for that. <laughs> of human nature, I'm not, I
2: hope so. So, Gavin, I emailed you, about I don't know if you got it. I'm part of the IUCN Southern group. So I'm on the IUCN, the um, the organization. That oh, cool. That, 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 that's how you know all about I'm a <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so uh, the IUCN, they're the ones who, where you get scientists to donate their time. And then they say if it's oh. endangered or threatened or critically endangered, blah, blah. I always say blah, blah, blah. I shouldn't. Yeah. All right. So I'm on their page and I see all these sawfish and their status for the small tooth sawfish, which is the one that's in Florida. It says critically endangered. Oh, that's um, really little. endangered.
0: And all that- five swordfish species are critically endangered. All of yeah. them.
1: Okay. So, and and you think and you think that that's well a, a series of reasons. Like the first reason is they used to to kill them because they wanted to all. Then they
2: or then they were using. Yeah. Do all they have the, the, the same
0: Do the same threats
2: apply to these global species? Yes.
0: They do, and it's largely because of where they live. They you know live. Oh, that's on that continental margins where yes. people like to fish. Yes. And so that's the biggest problem I mean they they, they have been targeted for their rostrum, and that certainly doesn't help but even if nobody collected any more roster, um, you know we'd still got these shrimp boats and uh, lots of bycatch that would be responsible for for getting these animals by mistake
1: haven't they changed that uh, long lines fishing and and those uh, netting haven't they made that uh, different
0: oh, In Florida, we're not allowed to use gillnets anymore, which is great. And that has had a huge impact on the uh, slow recovery of uh, a lot of animals, and particularly sawfish. But in other parts of the world where sawfish occur, in Southeast Asia, um, they don't have the resources um, to manage their fisheries and police them as well as uh, perhaps we do. And so... They're vulnerable in in lots of of, of parts of the world where um, there's there's more sort of uh, people rely on the seas for making a living, and uh, they're not as policed as well as they are in uh, uh, federal waters here in the U.S. Yeah,
2: they've been doing the same thing for so many years, they don't really know how to change it. So Gavin, you got one last uh, email. It's from Ellen. We hear a lot of environmental doom and gloom on the media regarding mostly sharks. Is there any good news out there regarding sharks or sawfish?
0: Absolutely. Um, I think most nature will rebound fairly well if we just leave things alone. And sharks are no different. Now, sharks live a long time and they have long generation times, but so it's going to take us. Whereas it might just take us ten years for anchovy to recover, it's going to take us more like fifty or hundred years for these shark populations to oh, recover. Wow. But if we leave things alone, I am confident that they will recover. So I agree with your caller that there is a lot of doom and gloom, and um, you know a lot of a lot of young people. Sort of, I've got young children they sort of throw their hands up in the air and say, what what kind of a world are you leaving us? And and, uh, I tell them that, well, we're leaving a world with a lot more environmentally aware people that appreciate what's going on. And I'm confident that things will rebound.
2: That's a lovely way to think about it. So So, thank you so much, Dr. Gavin Naylor. You're the director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at the University of Florida. Where can people go to learn more about your research or sharks and rays?
0: So they can go to the uh, Florida Museum of Natural History's um, webpage, and we have the shark program. Um, So if you just Google shark program, Florida Museum of Natural History, uh, and you'll get taken to uh, the Florida program for shark research. And uh, then there's all sorts of links you can learn. shark attacks um, and we have an interactive map where all of the shark attacks we manage the international shark attack files so every bite since the 1960s that's being documented we have a record of it and we have an interactive map and you can go and click on the dots and you can see which species was involved and where they happened and then you can go and see the natural history of the sharks that are responsible and you, we want to convert people from being frightened about chances mm-hmm. to understanding how fascinating they are.
2: We're cl- we are out of time. So, so thank you, okay. you so, much. so much for being on our show. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Stay tuned. In the next hour, you will hear WMNF's Community Speaks with Mabili. And you can follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living WMNF, to stay in the loop. And to listen to past shows, just go to Listen On Demand on WMNF.org.
1: And I am Annie Ellis. And uh, remember,
2: go ahead. <laughs> if you're looking for someone <laughs> to save the world, look in the mirror. And this is WMNF Tampa. Bye. Bye.
1: You have been listening to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa. Happy Holidays.
2: Here comes the sun.